0: Roads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This
1: is the time for us to just really take charge.
0: That's what revolutions do they enable the impossible. What if you just gave your ideas away? That's what Chris has done. From co working spaces to being the guy that invented the hashtag. What happens when you open source your life and live a little bit more in the future than the rest of us? That's what we're going to learn about today in our chat with Chris. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is the Grow Show. Chris, for as long as I've known about the internet, I've somehow have known about you. It's you've creepy. You, yeah, it, 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 it's very <laughs> telling of the social web and your early involvement in it, I think. For folks who may be out there who don't know who you are, give us a little background about your life on the web and what you've been up to all all these years. I mean,
1: I would expect that most people on the internet don't really know much about me. I came out to San Francisco probably about 11 years ago, and I quickly got involved with the Mozilla Firefox project and kind of launching that browser. I always been super interested in this idea of what the internet could offer in terms of giving people the ability to contribute to projects and stuff that they loved. When I discovered what they were doing with like the open source community and in building this project that anybody could contribute to. And that would ultimately become this publishing platform for anybody, anywhere, anytime. I was just super enamored by it. And so I kind of spent my first eight or nine months here working on that before I had any friends here or knew anybody. (laughs) And, um, Started the first co-working spaces here in San Francisco and then sort of popularized that model, which has now become this great international community. And about a year after that, I sort of proposed the hashtag on Twitter and was like, <laughs> Hey guys, like here's an idea for you. few people heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I went to work at Google to basically work on sort of like Google social products. So I, I worked very briefly on Google buzz and then Google plus for better or worse. It was a very interesting moment in my life as well as Google's. And um, then in January of this year, joined Uber to help build its platform
0: to me you're an organizer mm-hmm. and you're an organizer and you're somebody who's very pro democratization of things you don't want to own things you want the world to go and adopt things which is kind of what I want to talk with you about today we'll talk about the latter first which is you came up with a bunch of really interesting ideas or were early on and a bunch of interesting ideas and you didn't try to squeeze them and restrict them and, and capitalize them like basically like, let them go and let them be free why? Like <laughs> Maybe a more capitalistic human would have decided to do something different, but why? Well,
1: it depends on how you look at it. You know, it's completely true that I came from and I grew up in New Hampshire, which is a very libertarian place. So in that respect... <laughs> that um, explains so much. Yeah, who lives I mean, in it New should. England. Well, it's a funny mix, though, because I've got like those libertarian roots, and yet I live in California, and I'm clearly like more of a Californian now in a lot of my attitudes. But I think my grandmother sort of imparted this either distrust or dislike of sort of like big government and things like that. And so with some of the ideas that were coming out of the open source world, the idea was, look, you know, you've got a good idea, contribute it to something bigger than than you can possibly do yourself and then come together and collaborate and allow for the best ideas to sort of like bubble up through a process uh, called meritocracy. Furthermore, if you can contribute your idea in such a way that other people can build on it, then that becomes the foundation for even better and more interesting and more complex expressions. So, Part of the challenge. And I think this is the kind of product person that I've become is like, how can you solve a problem in the simplest possible way that leads to the widest adoption and then the greatest overall benefit. And in a lot of the things that I've worked on, especially related to social web standards and technologies and protocols like that. It's been about creating a larger pie than just sort of owning a very small blueberry, so to speak, you know, (laughs) so it's like, you really kind of want to like have the entire thing and to create industries upon that so that we can do interesting work and connect people in more interesting ways. For example, this is a question that I get asked a lot. It's like, well, what if you had like patented the hashtag and then sort of gotten royalties for every time someone used it. And I'm like, well, Yeah. What if I had done that and then no one used it and then the hashtag never took off and Twitter sort of like died off because Instagram never adopted the hashtag and then it didn't spread across the networks and then became this tool for organizing conversations across all the networks and all the platforms that then gave rise to more publishing across the internet and then more voices having the ability to rise up in different ways. What if that was the future? So. In some respects, we don't know what would have happened to a lot of ideas that have been sort of locked down and that required permission to use them in the first place. But I know that in the ideas that I've tried to proactively give away and give away without any kind of ownership besides trying to maintain the integrity of the idea, they've had a lot more spread and adoption globally, internationally, and faster than I might otherwise have been able to achieve the same thing had I built a business around it and forced people to come to me first to use stuff.
0: Yeah, Your adoption velocity is just so much higher when you can be yeah. open in that Yeah. And way. I mean,
1: again, it, it also comes down to what your success model kind of looks like. There's a lot of people a lot of my friends, frankly, that built companies around, let's say open source. Matt Mullenweg is a good friend of mine. Um, built WordPress, yeah. and guy. obviously, you know, built an incredible business and, his software and and his community software, um, moreover powers a lot of websites across the web. That's super interesting. But of course he's tied to it in a way, I've not had to be tied to some of the things that I've worked on. So in some ways you sort of put the idea out there as a seed or as a germ and it grows organically. It takes the shape that it needs to. And I didn't have to, continue to devote myself to these things for years and years and years and years. Coworking is something that I was involved with for the first two or three years very actively, and it still continues on, and there's still this vibrant community around it, and I've been able to move on. I mean, whether I just have ADD and I just can't focus on anything, or I play this role of kind of seeing some patterns and then I socialize them, and then I talk to people about them, and then I get them involved, and I give them ownership of it. It's been a pattern that's repeated quite a few times in my life, and it's been uh, pretty productive, I think.
0: How does it feel to see those things out in the world?
1: Hmm. It's amazing. I mean, it's. (laughs) It has to feel great. Yeah. yeah, That's why I'm asking. It's super unexpected. (laughs) You know, it's funny because I was just in Pittsburgh last week, which is also where I went to school. And I was on this panel with an artist there who has started to popularize this hashtag called hashtags are the new protest sign or something along those lines. And to sort of hear the work that he's doing and how he's using social media to bring people together to bring awareness to issues like Black Lives Matter is incredibly gratifying because I, I never could have anticipated that that would have been one of the core use cases for communities coming together and trying to find a voice through social media which is frankly built and designed by like a lot of white people. The diversity that giving away these ideas has sort of led to I think is actually one of the things that's really important because it's reached communities that I personally, wouldn't have necessarily had the right access to, but that should be part of the overall mix of experiences and conversations that are out there.
0: It strikes me that, that you are kind of the, one of the great organizers of the web in that you have organized a lot of movements and then you've passed off those to other leaders. Quite frankly, most of the people listening, that's exactly what they want to do. They mm. want to organize a community about something, whether it's around their business, whether it's around a nonprofit they're passionate about, whatever it might be. Like That's ultimately what they want to do. How do you do it like you, you you've done it with high high levels of success on a repeatable fashion? You have to have some secrets for us. Well
1: It's uh, it's tough because it's a little bit unintuitive <laughs> and it may not be right for everyone which is if you take a purely capitalist perspective and approach Then it's your success over everyone else's and I think that the nature of the web is such that the more links that are created between things, the more popular and valuable they become, and there's some self-selection in that. But i found that personally, the more that I kind of invest in other people's success, the more successful I become. Maybe it sounds a little bit cliche, but it's really true. I mean, again, whether it's giving away a lot of the work that I've done or, you know, trying to step in, I mean, in some cases there's also just been a very timely element for some reason where I've been able to sort of step in front of parades as they're forming. People don't know that they're happening, but I am looking at enough things and recognizing enough trends or sort of indicators of movement in a direction that I can describe it because I care a lot about words and I care a lot about communication. Such that suddenly people are like, oh, yeah, of course, like I knew that was there, but I just didn't quite know how to describe it or what to use to talk about it. I mean, a good example of that is actually kind of this year, right as I was joining Uber, I wrote this post in which I kind of talked about 2016 as being the year of conversational commerce. And what I was looking at were a couple of apps that had launched that were available over SMS. And they were starting to use that channel to offer services. Uh, one was called fetch and you could kind of say, Hey, like I need some toilet paper or whatever. I don't know why I always think about toilet paper. Um, <laughs> you always need it. I mean, I, I mean, it's just yeah, universally necessary. And um, the service would sort of be like, okay, you know, how much do you need? Like, here's how much it is. And then it would deliver it to you. I mean, magic is another one of these. And there's been a few others that have cropped up that have done very similar things, but another one that I'd launched that was sort of very surprising was path talk. I don't know if people remember what path was, but path was sort of like that small social network that was really for you and 150 okay. friends. And it always kind of struggled to take off relative to Facebook, but it had found some traction, I think in Asia and then they made this acquisition for this company that would essentially stand in the middle and allow you to send a message via path talk to a business. And previously, I mean, you, you could call a business. I but used you could, that company. It was awesome. Yeah. They acquired it. And yeah. you could, you could never like text message them. And so, I don't know, like in your mind, you're just like, well, I just can't text message businesses. It just doesn't work. But then they created this sort of interface layer that allowed you to do that. And they would literally have people call these businesses, ask them the question that you would text them. And then path talk would text you back with the response.
0: Yeah, it was called talk to. It was amazing. It was amazing. I I used it for like a year. It's great. So it was amazing. Right. And so
1: I'm like, wow, like maybe there's a world where this actually happens and businesses like are not just on social media and using it to broadcast, but they're using the internet as a conduit to have conversations that are text-based. So that was like a year before this past January. And then I started to see, you know, more evidence of this, whether it was Amazon echo allowing you to talk to this room computer that just sort of sat there and listened to your every utterance, or it was the integration of Uber into Facebook messenger that started to demonstrate that conversations were new extension points for, for the web. And that furthermore, there was all this this app fatigue that was starting to grow. You know, we have these great phones, we've had them for about 10 years. Every successive download of an app is removing the likelihood that you'll ever return to any of the other apps you have, let alone the one that you most recently downloaded, unless it's providing like amazing value or you're a young person, you're willing to try these things. And so that creates this crisis where you're like, well, how do I reach my customers when getting them to download and install my app takes an enormous amount of effort, let alone just getting them to open the app again once they've downloaded it. And so the conversational context seemed to be this opportunity space where there was a lot of activity. People were talking to their friends constantly, talking to colleagues, talking to family members, but that businesses just weren't there yet. And so why couldn't you start to incorporate and include businesses into that? Then the question became, well, it's one thing for me to have half a dozen conversations going on at any given time. If I'm a brand, let's say I'm Virgin America and I've got 10,000 conversations going on simultaneously, how do I actually manage that and how do I scale? And that's where i think a lot of the bots and automated agents and assistants have really become relevant and so you're taking what used to be kind of these ivr systems these interactive voice recording systems that you'd talk to over the phone and you would go through these phone trees to figure out and then direct people to the right sort of outcome as fast as possible and that opened up this whole new opportunity space and so that was kind of the idea about conversational commerce was bringing brands and businesses into a space that previously had been reserved for much more intimate, much more private conversations. And what I think is going to be very, very interesting to see is what are the best use cases and applications in that context? Because if businesses look at messaging, as just being another place to sort of shotgun blast their customers in the face to like, you know, deliver messages and ads to them. They're missing the whole point and intimacy that that channel provides. And I think that that channel provides a way to create long-term and enduring relationships that you just can't get any other way. So I'm very excited about it, but I'm also very cautious about how people might try to exploit
0: that context. Yeah. You know, the way you distill this stuff is very interesting in that article. For me, the thing that I thought you distilled really well that like I had kind of had in my brain but hadn't formulated the way you had was the virality of that in the way that you, if, If I'm trying to order Uber or pizza or flowers or whatever, I can do that in a chat dialog, not just with myself, but with you. Right. And in a graphical user interface, I'm always doing that by myself in isolation. And you would never know how to do this thing that I'm doing. But It's such such an excellent point. It's a really interesting idea for me.
1: Actually, that's how hashtags, I think, really grew, right? Is that, and in some ways, these are all building off of the original idea of open source, which is to say to put out a behavior and to demonstrate the behavior is the best way to teach other people how to emulate that behavior. So when you see someone use a hashtag, you may not get it the first time, but maybe like the third, fourth or 10th time, you're like, what are they doing? And oh wait, all I have to do is like put this symbol in front of my word and then it becomes a link to a conversation. Like that's really easy to do in a similar way. If you're having a conversation, like you mentioned, like in messenger and someone orders an Uber or pays you money you may sort of start to get the idea that you might be able to do the same thing. And I think that's one of the big, big differences with messaging, which is that it's a multiplayer mode sort of out of the gate, as opposed to most apps, which are single player apps um, or single player experiences. You can share something, you know, you can share a photo, you can share things that you create with these apps, but in terms of watching someone do the action or invoke the action, that's a lot harder. And so the messaging context is great because it creates this channel where you can observe what the other one's doing and um, and then emulate that. I was simply sort of identifying a trend that I thought was kind of upon us, given a number of things that I was looking at. And then suddenly over successive months, all of these platforms opened up. And uh, it, you know, it's not like my post caused those things to happen or that people weren't already planning to do them. It just seemed like for some reason, um, it, it, it sparked this kind of awareness or this self-awareness to say, yeah, actually that's, that's kind of, that kind of is what's happening. And then suddenly there was like data that sort of backed that up and, and showed that, you know, people are using messaging a lot more than feed based social networks and all this stuff was happening. Yeah. Um, so I had kind of <laughs> thought that, I guess after the hashtag, like that would be it, you know, like, I, <laughs> I was like, spent, I'm done here. you know, I'm sorry guys, I got nothing left. And then, uh, like, you know the, the the bot thing kind of happening. Conversation software is like happening now, and so I'm riding this wave again. Um, and it's 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 actually very strange.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that we've lived in a world where we've just tried to shove and cram everything through this pipe that is email, mm. in a lot of ways. And it, we're really diversifying the communication channels we have and fragmenting across email, SMS, messaging, a whole, a whole host of stuff. What's the driving factor to yeah. broader adoption? You think?
1: Well, the funny thing is the world is already ready for it. <laughs> um, the problem is that the world's expectations are so low. And so mm. in some respects, we've built software that and experiences that had to track to like the lowest common denominator of, of the experience that was available at the time. So email exists the way it does, because we used to have dial up modems where you had to sort of explicitly connect to a server and then you know, do the connection and sort of like, download all your messages and it was very asynchronous and it was sort of modeled after the way that, you know, mail itself yeah. is kind of transmitted. We're now living in a world of, of synchronicity where if I'm sending you a message, you're seeing sort of like a typing indicator that says, oh, like Chris is typing. And that should create a different set of expectations in the user in terms of how quickly they can express what it is that they want and how they can shape the meaning that they're trying to express in an iterative fashion. In other words, software is going to become a lot more flexible, resilient, and forgiving in a way that the explicit interfaces of the past, in other words, graphical interfaces that said, you know, tap here to get a menu becomes more emergent where it's like, I am software and I can do a bunch of things for you. I connect to all these backend services so I can order you a car or I can order you a pizza or I can do whatever. And the failure cases become a lot more gradual and less onerous. So when you ask Siri to do something for you, she can say, yeah, I can do that for you or I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) And then eventually over time you might sort of just become more willing to try things. And the thing that that actually I think is is so interesting is that when I watch my seven and 11 year old interact with Siri, they have no shame and no fear. They will ask her to do anything. And even (laughs) when she like says no a million times in a million different ways, they will continue to ask the same question because they don't know any better. You can imagine that that behavior, let's say in five or, or even three years is the norm that young people are willing to engage in. I think older people, ourselves included, from a previous generation where we were trained by Google to create the perfect search phrase, okay. will start to sort of become a lot more lazy in the way that we express what we want. And we'll be looking to young people, children, gen alpha, whatever, to model that behavior and they're going to have much higher expectations of software in a way, but a willingness to kind of engage with these platforms in a way that we may be uh, reluctant because we'll get frustrated too quickly. Um, So the world is ready. It's just like, we have a different set of expectations based on how we've been trained to use technology. um, And we have to kind of get over that.
0: What's a conversational interface good for and what's a graphical interface good for. I think if I'm, if I'm a, if I'm a business person out in the world today, that's really what I want to know is like, what are my use cases in both types of interfaces in terms of what's best there?
1: It's kind of the wrong question in, in a way. And it's not like it's a bad no, question. No, it's, no, no. it's um,
0: please tell me I'm wrong. I like, that's good.
1: It's more that I look at the idea of creating a business or a service as thinking about there being a continuum of, of interaction points and that the fidelity of the interface that you're offering your service through needs to adapt to whatever the context of the user is. So if I'm driving a car, it doesn't make sense for me to be looking at my phone and trying to navigate your menu. But if I'm like trying to browse for like a holiday gift, maybe it makes sense for me to go to my, my laptop and sort of have a full screen yeah. experience with a mouse and a keyboard. I guess the point is, is more to think about what is the context of your user and in what moments are they most interested or likely to be needing something from you. And I think the Alexa is a great example where Amazon said, well, how do we remove the friction of someone walking around their home, realizing that they're out of toilet paper and they need to get some. Is it really the best experience for me to go to my, let's say it's, a la- it's like a desktop PC, sure. launch it, wait 45 seconds <laughs> for it to load, and go to amazon.com, type in toilet paper, as opposed to just saying, hey Alexa, can you add toilet paper to my shopping list? that is so much easier and I'm going to use that 10 times more per day than I would the alternative. So it's really about, and I mean, now they even have buttons, right? Where you can just like push a button and it like orders you, you know, awesome. whatever, all of those things are different ways of thinking about communication and creating the sort of optimal communication pathway to deliver your service to your customer. I think that's the way to really think about it. And so if, whatever it is that you're offering it can be offered conversationally, mm-hmm. then yeah, it makes sense to sort of explore and experiment with these different messaging platforms. If you're offering something that's very complex and requires a high level of sophistication and configuration, you know, you probably wanna to stick to like the web.
0: Yeah, I think, man, there's a, there's a massive amount of change coming both from a technological standpoint and just a user behavior standpoint subsequently. And we're really gonna need a whole new set of infrastructure to usher in that change.
1: When I was talking about the idea of conversational commerce, obviously like commerce was the big sort of thing that I was adding yeah. to the mix. Yep. Now I've sort of softened that a bit and it's more about conversational apps and conversational software, but the commerce piece is going to be huge. One of the questions will be, what role do centralized institutions play in the future? What role do they play when apps like Instagram and snap and, and so on are introducing payments and, and in Kik's case, virtual payments. Yeah to allow, let's say teenagers to exchange value and to do things for each other without having to go to sort of like a central hub or source. And that'll create a whole new type of commerce that we've never quite seen before. That in and of itself is going to change behavior. Then there's a question of how do you participate in that economy and how do you become banked, if you will. And I have no idea exactly how
0: that's going to play out. So before we let you go, you're at Uber now, you're working on building developer communities there. So let's get back to that idea of developing communities. And so give me some insight about like how specifically at Uber you're working on building on that community. So maybe we could mm-hmm. share some lessons with, with everybody out there who's tried to do something similar.
1: Yeah. It's a really interesting question and I think it's still emergent and it's still very early. The Uber developer platform is relatively new. Yeah. It started out kind of like as an experiment to see if it'd be possible to give third parties and other app builders the ability to provide more value to their customers by enabling them to request a ride, let's say, in their app. So the Ride Request API is one of our oldest and most widely used APIs. We recently opened up the Uber Rush API, so now you can do deliveries mm-hmm. using the Uber network, which is really, really interesting, I think, for small businesses. And then Super. we've also opened up what we call the Trip Experiences API, which allows you to use the context of a, of a rider's trip to personalize your application for them. So I'll give you a, a more concrete example of that. You, know, you can imagine that every time you're in an Uber, let's say you open up Foursquare, you know, to get some recommendations about where you're going. Currently there's this friction where you have to sort of recenter the search on yeah. where you're about to be as opposed to like where you are because Foursquare's recommendations are based on your GPS location and of course you're driving by the things that it's <laughs> recommending to you. So we think that using your Uber trip context where Uber already knows where you're going would be a great way to enhance search. So we make that information available via an API. And as a rider, you can tell third party apps like, hey, I would like you to actually use my information. Um, And so it's within your permission. And once they do that, then they can actually enhance their experience. So those are kind of like the three, there's ride requests, there's deliveries, and there's trip experiences. And I think that one of the biggest challenges for us right now, it all comes back to, I think this communications challenge, which is, what is Uber offering you as a developer business or brand that provides a better experience to your customer? And then how do you explain to your customer how Uber fits into that mix? The way that we look at transportation as a service, generally speaking is that it's just another kind of API call. Yeah. But for businesses, that's kind of like mind blowing. You know, the idea that we want to make it possible for you to just push a button, let's say, or make a request via voice and suddenly a car shows up um, to drive you someplace is something the world is still sort of, I think, adapting to as being an option. And so then it's like, how do you find the right businesses or partners or people that can o- offer this to their, their users in a way that makes sense? So right now we focus a lot on transit apps. Actually, there's a really good example here in San Francisco called Pythagoras, okay. which is this on-demand pizza delivery service. <laughs> um, what they've done is, is they started out actually only being able to deliver within like a two or three block radius in the mission. They had their own fleet of couriers and so they would rent test kitchens, you know, make their pizzas and sort of really focus on, on the design of the packaging. They send you little Polaroids in every pizza box, but they weren't able to scale to a broader market. And so using the Uber rush deliveries API, they were able to use our fleet of drivers who signed up to deliver products to actually extend their market to the entirety of San Francisco. So they're kind of a virtual pizza, delivery service now. So very San Francisco. It's so San Francisco. (laughs) What's amazing about it is that you could imagine that for so many different categories of businesses where you don't need to have a storefront. You don't need to worry about all the liability and all those extra things about actually bringing people into a physical place. You can just provide your product to people wherever they are on demand, sort of say, you know, we're open for these hours and that's it. And You can design your business in a very intentional way where you don't have to just take kind of like the franchise model, which requires you to sort of I don't know, follow some known playbooks and, and kind of figure it out for yourself. And so I think that's, that's super interesting. And I, I think we're looking for things like
0: that. Cool. With the most recent round of the technology, it made it easier than ever before to start a company. And it seems like we're maybe in the early stages of the next round of platforms, like what you guys are trying to do at Uber is one example. I think there are others in the market. Do you think the friction to actually be an entrepreneur? and to build an interesting business is gonna to continue to decrease.
1: Well, it's interesting because for the last decade to like the last 15 years, the hard stuff has been setting up your IT kind of infrastructure. Yeah. When that's no longer the problem, then you can focus a lot more on brand and on value and on differentiation and on conversation and reputation and the things that are actually differentiating in a meaningful way. So if it's not so much that you're worried about just scaling your service, but actually meeting people where they are and becoming more adaptive and responsive, then, then I think that's super interesting. And it changes what a, what a business really is. You know, if I deliver my business entirely over like Amazon Alexa, what is that? Like we don't know <laughs> that's yet. true. There are businesses no that, that will just be APIs that plug into a bunch of other front ends and are essentially white labeled and they're they're providing meaningful value i mean you can imagine this is true for like machine learning startups Absolutely. and things like that and so where the value is is provided and added i think is is going to change a bit and also businesses are becoming you know just like the internet is modeled like sort of with microservices more atomic so yeah. you can focus on like a very narrow niche and you know charge a reasonable amount of money maybe a very small amount um, but get a large number of customers and do pretty well for yourself in a way that before you had to create a much more monolithic kind of stack. So I think that's super interesting.
0: All right, in finishing up here, if you are a mere mortal, you're out there, you have a company that is years away from having to maybe think about this stuff in earnest, how should you start to adapt your business? Or how should you start to think about these trends as it actually applies to your average company of 2016? not your average company of 2020.
1: It's such a funny question. I mean, the blessing and a curse of being me <laughs> <laughs> is that I find that I end up living in the future by yes. anywhere from three to five years. So when you ask that question, I'm like, well, why would you wait? Like, I mean, now <laughs> is the time. That's a very honest answer. Uh, I love so that answer. For me, I'm like, how do you, how do you become more human in the way that you're approaching your customers? How do you become less formulaic? I mean, I get, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of email, like a day that I just never read and I don't care about and I never will. And increasingly, people are going to be like that. How do you actually get out ahead of that to become a business and a service provider that interacts with your customers when it's most valuable and useful? And where you start to actually learn about your customers and their preferences, and you find a way of opening up the conversation path so that, it's not just about berating people over and over again and trying to get that you know 0.1% conversion, but where you have a smaller number of customers, but you're meeting their needs in such a valuable way that they want to stick with you with like you know for the long term. We have almost such a I don't know it just feels very like crass and um, cynical approach to marketing and to messaging and that we're willing to kind of berate millions and millions of people to get a hundred people to sort of say yes or be interested when there might be better ways to actually show value and to integrate yourself into communities in a way that shows that you care. I don't know if that's like scalable, I don't know if that's like a way to build a great business, but I mean, that's the way that I've found success in the past and I hope that more and more businesses are able to move in that direction so that there are less slimy relationships out there and more
0: positive ones. I think it's the closest thing to like a mic drop we've we've ever had here. <laughs> I think that was an amazing, uh, amazing note to end on. Chris, thanks so much for hanging out with us for a few minutes. Thanks so much it. for having me. Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for listening to our show. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you think by leaving a review on iTunes.